welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction Welcome to this TARP talk relating to Module 6, which deals with the skills you need for effective endings to the consultation. I'm Avril Danshak, GP and educator from Manchester, and I'm joined by my eminent colleagues today, uh, Dr Anne Thomas and Dr Mohan Kumar. And we're going to be talking about how effective endings improve patient safety and also help to prevent complaints and litigation. So good morning, Anne. Um, can I start with you? Hi, Avril. Uh, if we prepared carefully for a consultation and gathered all the right information, including the patient's perspective, and then developed a sound management plan in collaboration with the patient and taken their specific needs into account, isn't that enough? How can we need special skills for ending consultations effectively? Yeah, well, all those skills that you've mentioned uh, from TALP modules one to five, I mean, they're vital for getting a good plan in place. But things can still go wrong at this point. And there's, there's many reasons for that, actually. I mean, this can occur if perhaps a patient hasn't understood the plan. Maybe somebody doesn't remember the plan that's been made. But also in situations where if a patient doesn't know what to do if the situation changes or even doesn't appreciate really the significance of how things might change, well, this can all mean that the end of the consultation isn't effective. And I was thinking of examples where this can occur. And there's often a case where there's something that seems relatively straightforward, but it maybe has uh, an element that might cause some concern for the clinician. So I was thinking of a patient who consults maybe with a, a hoarse voice as part of what a clinician thinks is a viral laryngitis. And it may be the situation that that seems quite straightforward for a clinician and they close the consultation by giving these thoughts over to the patient um, and the sort of guidance which we hear really frequently which is the sort of come back if things are worse type guidance because in the clinician's mind they're thinking well horse voice you know that could be something significant and maybe if it it didn't go away then I want to know about that but in the ending if the instruction is more vague you know come back if it doesn't get worse well the patient goes away and it doesn't get worse, but it really isn't any better. And the patient thinks, well, the doctor said, come back if it gets worse and it hasn't got worse. So actually there's a mismatch in what the patient's understanding and what the clinician is thinking. And these are the sort of situations which sometimes mean that the ending isn't as effective as it should be. That, that makes total sense. So Mohan, just could you kick us off by just listing what skills are needed and then we'll go on to explore them in a bit more detail. Of course, Avril, thank you. I think there are four key skills covered in this section in the chapter. And I think when it comes to effective endings, firstly, confirming the plan of care and the next steps for both the patient and the physician. Like Anne said, if there is any ambiguity, then that can lead to confusion. So confirming the plan of care and the next steps. Secondly, Explaining the possible unexpected outcomes, it both helps the clinician to think out loud about what, what their thoughts are, and also explains to the patient what to do if the plan is not working, when and how to seek help if things do not go to plan. 
or if the situation changes. We usually call this safety netting. Then we need to ensure that the consultation ends properly, it needs to be a final summary and a final check, that the patient is comfortable with the plan um, and offers the opportunity for any final questions or corrections. I, I compare this to doing an eyes because ideas, concerns, and expectations aren't just about the beginnings of the consultation, but they're also about the endings of the consultation as well. Mm, that makes total sense. Thank you, Mohan. So when we begin by thinking about the next steps for both parties, how can the clinician be sure that the patient's sort of on the same page and make sure that any misunderstandings are, are cleared up at, right at the beginning of, the, of this part of the consultation? Mohan, what do you think about that? Thank you. I've heard quite a lot of clumsy ways of doing this because people haven't actually reflected on what to say towards the end. So you hear trainees and doctors say things like, what are you going to tell your husband when you get home? Or uh, say something about, you know, um, or can you explain things back to me? And it not, not giving a clear summary to the, to the patient so that they are clear in, in what they are doing. So I think in order to clear any misunderstandings and precisely knowing that both the clinician and the patient have know clearly what is going to happen subsequently is very, very important. Mm -hmm. So I think it's useful as we near the end of the consultation to use a signposting, signposting phrase to signal a summary and the end of the consultation is coming. Um, so the clinician may say things like, I think we are nearly finished now. Can I summarize our plan and hear from you what you think your next steps are? This way, the clinician's able to articulate exactly what the plan is, but also gives an opportunity for the patient to clarify if there's any confusion, but also ask some questions about what the next steps would be. And I think this helps to confirm that the patient has understood and remembered what has been agreed. It also shows that when a clinician ends the consultation this way, there's a lot more ownership with the patient on the management plan. It doesn't remain the clinician's plan. It's actually a shared plan, which is what we want as an outcome. Mm. I think that's very interesting. I really like the idea of using a signposting phrase to sort of say something like, well, perhaps we're nearly finished or, you know, I think we're coming to the end now or, you know, we've got a plan before you go. All these kinds of signpostings can be ways of kind of alerting everyone that we're coming towards the end. And I, I think, as you say, getting the patient to say, well, what's your next steps going to be? And then that, that opportunity for them to be engaged at that point is much more likely for them to remember what's going on. Uh, and I think, in particular, the kinds of things you've described will be more straightforward if all the explaining and personalised planning skills of TALC 4 and 5 have been used in advance of that. So Anne, can I ask you to say a little bit more about what people often call safety netting? You know, what's this all about and what needs to happen? Yeah, I mean, safety netting, most clinicians who are practicing or in training will have heard the phrase and understand that it's something we do at the end of the consultation to make things safer. I think one of the problems with safety netting is it's often just a bit too vague. As we said before, it's the sort of contact us if things don't get better type of phrase. It's much better and much more effective to be personal and specific about these instructions. So if we're asking patients to get back in contact with us, then 
suggest a, a way this could happen. Is it by telephone? Is it by sending a message or whatever that might be? And also to be more specific about what a patient should be thinking about and looking out for. So I think of it as the three key questions and often sharing this with the patient can make this more effective also. So the first question, if we're right about our plan, then what do we actually expect to happen? And how, second question is how will we know if things are not going to plan? And at that point, the third question then, well, what would need to happen then? So if we think back to our patient with the hoarse voice, we're saying, well, we think this is a viral laryngitis. If we're right, we expect this hoarseness to settle in one to two weeks. So we know that's not going to plan if that doesn't happen and explaining that directly and explicitly can help. And then what happens then? Well, I'd like you to call the surgery and make an appointment with a clinician, ideally me. So this is a much clearer direction of what the patient is expected to do. And it's also here an opportunity to use language in a skilled way by thinking about exactly what needs to be conveyed. And this helps to um, get rid of some of that vagueness. So if we're asking a patient to come back after a certain specific time, well, you know, state that. Or if we're asking someone to come back if certain things do happen or don't happen, then we need to explain that too. So by using this more structured approach, then this is safer and it's just a clearer direction for the patient. Thank you. That That's um, another way in which I think we can be using our tools in quite a nuanced way to actually personalise the care quite specific to that individual. Um, Mohan, do you have any other thoughts about safety netting and making it more nuanced for, for the people that we're actually working with? Uh, Anne did a really good explanation around specifying the conditions of follow-up. There's about the clinician who can ask for a follow-up when a specific thing happens. So, for example, you could say that come back and see me when you're discharged from the hospital. I often ask for patients to come back when they've been to the outpatients. Um, so it, it really gives the patient a clarity that you're interested in their journey and you're not just a spot check that you, you, you offer, you're offering continuity of care. So I think even the simple language we use in the consultation instructs the patient about how we are interested in the care plan. You can also say that um, come back and see me unless something happens. So it could be unless the rash completely clears. So this helps us to think about how, what are the possible outcomes? A clinician who normally thinks about the differential diagnosis is thinking about what kind of symptoms may indicate the different diagnosis because often in primary care, things can start quite innocuously and then take shape with time. So it, it helps both the clinician and the patient to be very clear of what parts the different outcomes can take place and how the clinician is still there to look after them at that point. I think we really need to think about what needs to happen then. Um, I often get repeat consultations, say for example, if the patient has seen one of our registrars and then comes to me, and you can see that the initial plan was very well designed, but unfortunately, if it's not been explored and explained clearly, the patient assumes that the original person didn't really know about the possible outcomes and chooses a different clinician to come to. And it stops us from learning the kind of journey of what 
the condition may be. So we need to think about what to do in these different circumstances. What other options might need to be considered? So for example, to use Anne's example of a sore throat or a hoarse voice, if things aren't settling next week and the glands stay up and your voice gets worse, uh, worse, we may need to consider doing another test. So for example, if the glands stay up, we may need to do a glandular fever test. So you are, you are saying that at, the, at this point in time, this is my chosen diagnosis, but if things don't improve and a specific thing happens, we'll be doing a con another test to confirm what it is. This gives the patient the sense of control. So if the patient does remain unwell, the positive glandular fever possibility has already been anticipated. So the clinician now seems careful. Um, they seem prescient. So someone who's actually anticipating and has considered the different possibility rather than somebody who's missed the diagnosis at first. I think that's very interesting, actually. And those kinds of approaches where you're kind of saying, these are my thoughts now, but I'm aware that things might change and I'll be thinking about what we might need to do in the future. That's also a way of building trust, isn't it, in the, in the clinician and patient relationship because you're saying, I'm, I'm interested in what happens to you next and also I've got some sensible thoughts about that and I care about what's going to happen next. And that's really important for people to carry out the plan is that they trust the clinician is looking after them. So I think it's very interesting that clinicians who share their thoughts explicitly in the way that you've just described um, can help build trust. So I, I'm wondering, Anne, if you've got any thoughts about um, how we can share our thoughts with other clinicians, because it's not just patients who need to understand our thinking, isn't it? Sometimes it might be our colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be thinking back to what Moen said about sort of continuity of care um, and the reality of practice is that you know it's not always possible for patients to see the same clinician with an ongoing problem so being aware of the wider clinical implications of symptoms will that assist with better and safer note keeping so if we're recording sort of sore throat symptomatic treatment uh, as a summary of a, a consultation that isn't giving the same detail as recording something like sore throat with hoarseness, see if hoarseness does not settle in two weeks. The second example here is more effective safety netting because it highlights a potentially serious prolongation of the hoarseness. So a clinician who's following a patient up who perhaps didn't see them in the first instance, they, that's easier for them to make an assessment. The ideas of the first clinician are expressed clearly within the notes, um, which again, obviously makes for a safer uh, situation for the patient. That's really interesting because it, it does mean that people have to be thinking when they write in the notes about the mo perhaps the most salient or the, the, the potentially worrying bit of the symptomatology, because people often have lots of different things that they're experiencing at a time but a, the wise clinician has got to say to themselves well these few things probably won't matter too much if the runny nose carries on it probably won't matter too much but if somebody is still very hoarse in two or three weeks time that that's unusual and that would need more attention so it's it's about really focusing on the clinical knowledge in this context of safety netting isn't it yes Thank you. So Mohan, can you tell us something about the final summary and, and checking and how we can use some signposting to help everybody get to the end of the consultation in a good way? Absolutely. I think summarising, as anybody would know, is, is a very essential skill 
when it comes to consultations for all sorts of reasons, whether it's come to um, gathering information and, and confirming the agenda for the consultation, but definitely becomes more important towards the end of the consultation during the closing phases. This aids to the accuracy the, and adherence of the patient, a final opportunity for the clinician and patient to confirm what they've been thinking all along. And definitely a final check that the patient is happy and to verify whether they have any questions. So this is the point of the consultation where the patient may say, you know, I'm fine, thank you for listening, thanks for taking your time. I feel a lot better now, I'm glad we have a plan. Now, sometimes they may say this, um, but you may see the non-verbal skills may not be that aligned. So there may be some hesitation, there may be a slight shift in eye contact or body language. And to avoid for them just being polite and saying this, it's a good way to have a final check before they go. So the clinician may say, before you go, what questions have you got now? This goes back to the concept of exploring ideas, concerns and expectations very quickly, very briefly about the management plan itself. And often clinicians hesitate to do that because this is when they are most rushed for time and the clock may be ticking and they think, I've, I've reached to the, I've reached the end now, I don't want to open up another, as they always say, Pandora's box. But often these are the key points. So giving yourself some time to ask this question towards the end is absolutely important. And as I said, this is also an opportunity when you're handing out some information um, and while you're signaling the end is nigh, you can also signal that you are still open for any final questions or checks before they leave the consulting room. I think that's really helpful. And I particularly like the way that you used a bit of signposting before you go. And then what questions have you got now? Kind of assumes that there's an opportunity to ask questions. And people might often say, I haven't got any questions then. Um, but it's better than just saying any questions because then people just say no automatically, don't they? And I, th I think it's worth reflecting on how we use nonverbal skills towards the end of the consultation because things like a slight shift in posture or a temporary breaking of eye contact or giving somebody something or moving away slightly, these can be legitimate ways to indicate that the end of the consultation is coming along. And if it's a consultation on the telephone or something, this sometimes needs to be said explicitly, I think exactly as you did there, saying, well, before we finish or before we go or we're coming to the end, can I just check and then to go on from there? So I'm going to ask you both for any thoughts about how to get better endings. Um, but the best ways to teach and learn these skills are also very important as well. So Mohan, first of all, could you comment on how you might actually do some teaching on this in a one-to-one -one or very small group situation. Then I'm going to ask Anne about groups. So if you'd like to kick off, Mohan. Oh, certainly. Um, I've found it's always useful to begin by exploring the clinician's own concerns about the closing the consultation, rather than us telling them it's useful to ask the clinician, uh, the trainee, to reflect on how they think the consultation went and how did they feel the endings were, did they feel that the consultation was too long or do they think that it didn't end as smoothly as they wanted to? So this bit of reflection helps us to then retrace the steps into the consultation. And often the clues to how it ended may also be at the beginning. So we can then check for why did you feel that you didn't have enough time for the ending? 
did we allow for the end to be done well? Um, like uh, one of the effective habits, begin with the end in mind. So if you haven't given yourself some, some time, what has happened in the consultation that, that caused that? So often repetition sometimes indicates that the management plan has not been properly agreed. So while the clinician may get frustrated that the patient is interrupting and rephrasing some of the questions, it's worth noting that they do that if they're not clear about what's going on. So a proper explanation, a proper agenda would help to save some time and that save time helps in a much more effective ending. This also has creates a larger issue. So we can ask the trainee in a teaching setting, what would happen if a management plan has not been properly agreed so that they can think beyond that consultation? They may come up with things like, it may result in repeated consultation about the same problem because the patient did not understand what the next steps are. Often they themselves may have been consulted by patients who have seen a previous clinician or been to a different setting like a &E or out of hours. And it brings some insight in the impact of our consultations and how a properly done ending can prevent a, a lot of things. Also, I usually ask the trainee to consider when they see a patient and when they're looking at the records of what happened before, are they clear on the thoughts of the previous consultation as to what was anticipated? Often a good ending would also result in a good summary in the records as well. Clinicians can get very frustrated by new problems that are brought up late in the consultation. And we know that this could be prevented largely by using the skills in the talk chapters one to five about why a consultation is like a business meeting as an educator, I like to use what, what, I, what we call an open book method to, to see what skills are needed to make this even better. So it's inviting the trainee to think about the endings, to think about what kind of endings they've experienced and what would they like it to be and how can the endings be even better, what we need to do as a skill. And then usually what we do is do a skills rehearsal where you create a scenario where the consultation is about to end. So you're only rehearsing the final bit of it. I think we make the mistake of sometimes doing very long role plays where we both lose the will to live towards the ending. So we may perpetuate that myth of not practicing the ending. So it's better to start with just doing the endings, whether it's an explanation or a shared management plan. There's a lot of information in talk, I'm sure which the educators can use on that. In, indeed, there are practice scenarios. And I think your point is well made that it's very often better to focus on one particular set of tasks in the consultation and one or two specific skills to practice in a skills rehearsal rather than trying to do the whole thing, which, as you say, can get, in the end, rather confusing and overwhelming. Whereas if you just focus on one or two things, and so a skills rehearsal might only last a minute or two. It doesn't have to take very long. That's usually a better way to practice the skills. And I also like your idea of using the talc materials or some other materials to say, go and read about endings before we discuss it so that we're all on the same page about what kind of things we might be thinking about. So, Anne, could I ask you how you might go about this in a larger group situation, you know, perhaps with a, a group on a study release course or maybe even a practice team or something like that? 
Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of the um, methods that Mo has um, described would be similar. And I think I agree for when teaching these skills in a group before the session, then educators could ask the group to prepare by reading some of the materials, uh, the talc materials, or listening to a talc talk um, on the topic. Um, then I think it is really helpful to hear experiences from the group um, about how the end of the consultation has gone for them and sharing those sort of experience um, of what people have encountered in their own practice it's really helpful actually and often it it brings out a lot of the themes that Moan's outlined what I've tended to hear from our trainees is that actually the the problems that they're encountering are usually to do with something that's gone wrong early on in the consultation by really drilling down into this it helps to identify the skills that are needed not just with this part of the consultation but throughout the, the consultation and then really focusing in on the skills i think within a group it's also useful to think about that open book method about explicitly looking for the skills naming them and having a real think about how to practice them so in a group uh, a really effective method is to actually identify the skill and use the group with an observer and then to go back and do that skills rehearsal just as Moan outlined focusing on that skill not on the whole of the consultation but on the skill at hand and then getting some useful feedback from observers about what they saw and what they heard, and then going back and practicing that again, and, and really sort of nailing the, the thing that you'd identified as, as part of the weakness in the consultation. And that could be a really effective way of giving some focus to this part of the, the closing of the consultation. I think that's really interesting. First of all, again, this idea of focusing on one section but also having an open book and kind of saying, well, what are the skills that we're looking for? Or maybe using a checklist from the chart resources. Then you've brought up that other idea, which is about going back and doing it again and having another mm. go and refining it. And it's almost like using the training session as almost like a laboratory or, or a rehearsal room for a musician, isn't it? Um, yeah. I know uh, in choir, uh, our choir director always says, I want you to make mistakes in rehearsal. Uh, and what he means by that is that I don't want you to make those mistakes in the concert with everybody listening. I want you to have a go at those, you know, in private, as it were. And I think if we can encourage learners to see the skills rehearsal as an opportunity to try something out, maybe it didn't work. Well, that's fine because no patient is going to be harmed if you make a mistake in the in the session. But then to try a few things out until you find a way that really does work properly. So. I want to bring up a slightly different thing here, which is we've talked here about making endings effective and to some extent making them efficient so that they happen in a timely way, getting the job done, signalling the end of the consultation. Is there actually a place for less efficient endings sometimes? And, and do we always have to be efficient at the end? Mo, what do you think about that? I'm glad you brought that up because often when you teach a certain element of efficiency, that shouldn't lead to some kind of robotic precision. It's an opportunity in the endings to show some humanity as well. So we should also prepare the learner and the, G and the clinician for consultations where a less efficient ending may happen and may be actually beneficial. So for example, if a patient brings up important issues later on, 
in the interest of efficiency, the clinician may sound very harsh. And if they haven't set the agenda right at the beginning, or if the patient tend to remember something towards the end, it sounds a bit harsh to say that, I'm sorry, it's one problem only, or I can only do this much, and then I'm not gonna to listen to you. So time invested in a slightly longer consultation may increase the trust and may also pay dividends in a more accurate assessment. It may save a lot of time, the patient is already here, it may save a lot of time in the future for avoiding repeated consultation. And it brings in the continuity I said about how it's a more patient-centered approach, but it needs to be handled with caution. So listening doesn't mean you have to rerun another consultation. It may help to prioritize earlier on. As we said, some of the time invested in the early part of the consultations may actually prevent this from happening. But despite that, occasionally patients listen to us see how we handle that first problem, and then we may think that I now trust this clinician enough to bring on this, the later bigger problem, something I call a Trojan horse consultation, where it, they bring in what looks like a timid little problem, and then that's used to assess the clinician and develop that confidence. So we need to balance this patient-centered approach, but also think about the resource and time, and also our own resilience, because if every consultation we, we end up running late, then it, the overall time management and our own energy can be drained and it becomes very unsafe scenario. So I think it's just, it's okay to be very efficient, but consider empathy and humanity. And also it's efficient sometimes to listen to it now to avoid repetition in the future. I think that's, that's very interesting actually. And particularly that investment in the beginning of the consultation will often mean that things get brought up at the right time but I, I can think of a patient that I once showed a video of actually to a group of trainers and uh, her initial comment was that she had quite a few problems she had was a bit concerned about her asthma um, she was concerned about some reflux symptoms she was getting she was worried about her diabetes um, and when we discussed it the one comment was well there's so many problems there you know you should just say you can only deal with one of them and uh, come back to the others but in fact when I listened to her and we went through it in a bit more detail her asthma had been playing up somebody had given her some steroids uh, the steroids had caused the reflux uh, the steroids had also caused the diabetes control to get a little bit worse so in fact although it seemed like three different problems it was basically all one problem that could be sorted out and al although it took 12 minutes to see her rather than 10 minutes uh, if I'd had three 10-minute consultations for each one of those three problems, that would have been 30 minutes in the end. So, so sometimes a little bit of time invested, um, particularly at the beginning of the consultation, will make for a better ending. But I, I want to ask your thoughts, Anne, about this, because I think um, Mohan really hinted about how building trust earlier on in the consultation might mean uh, that something comes up later on. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting listening to both of you. It's that flexibility, isn't it, in your consultation where, as uh, Moan said, you're not, you're not a robot. It doesn't have to go in a certain way each time. Um, I think that it's a real compliment, isn't it, actually, at times when people bring um, something slightly out of the blue, maybe even despite um, some very efficient screening and negotiating of an agenda at the beginning of a consultation, something is revealed towards the 
end phase of a consultation, possibly because the patient now feels able to raise an issue. Perhaps it's an embarrassing problem or perhaps a big fear or something um, significant like domestic abuse. And actually the building of trust early may be the only way that a patient feels that they can reveal that particular problem. And as I said, that, that's actually a great compliment to the clinician. So I think in these instances, um, these important matters, sometimes they just need attention uh, there and then. And in, even if that's just to make an acknowledgement and, and to outline perhaps a plan, but you're right that, that sometimes it's actually very much more efficient and appropriate to talk about it then. Um, and that's that flexibility of the, of, the, of the clinician. And if you've got the skills and if you've been working on your consultation skills, um, then you, this becomes something that's you know, easier to do and to negotiate. And as you said, it, it's actually less sort of draining or wearing. Um, and that le lets us go home with more energy to spare. Thank you, um, and thank you, Mohan. Very interesting discussion about the end of the consultation, which, um, as we kind of hinted at the beginning, sometimes people kind of just think doesn't really matter very much. Uh, I think there's uh, ample research that shows that people remember the endings of their experiences very greatly, and so if you can leave with a good impression, having made sure that you're on the same page with the patient, with a good and trusting relationship, and a commitment to continuity and caring for them going forwards, that will go a very long way to making consultations safer and actually making clinicians more satisfied and much less likely to receive complaints. So thank you everyone for that. And I'd, I'd like to point out that there is more information available about this issue and many other consultation skills issues on the TARP website and in the TARP Talks podcast series. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.